all those that are with us this morning. So thankful for your presence and especially those that are visiting with us. We are encouraged by your attendance this morning and we hope that you'll be back with us at every opportunity that you may have. We're going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 and we're going to talk about the greatness of God's salvation. You know, one of the things that is said by the Hebrew writer to those first century saints in the long ago had to do with the possibility of them neglecting their salvation. Many of us have known people that have neglected their physical health. And sometimes people fail to, to take care of themselves, physically speaking. And as a result of that, as they grow older in life, they have a, a number of health issues because of it. But sometimes people take care of themselves physically, but sadly, they neglect themselves spiritually. And really, when you look at it, spiritually speaking, it's terrible that anyone would ever neglect their salvation. To neglect the spiritual dimension of life. This morning, let's talk about why God's salvation is, is so great. Because the Hebrew writer asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And sometimes maybe we fail to realize that God's salvation is great and that there are some reasons why salvation is great. So let me share some of those reasons this morning of why I believe that God's salvation is so great. It's great because of its architect. When we talk about the architect of our salvation, that would be God the Father. What we need to understand is that God planned to save mankind. God planned to save man before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13 and verse 8, the Bible talks about the, slam that was, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And that has to do with Jesus. And in writing to the saints in Ephesus in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, Paul said in the long ago that God had chosen us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. That is before God ever framed the world as we know it, the universe as we know it. He had a plan in place to redeem fallen man. Now someone might ask the question, well, how did, how did God know that man would fall? Why would God have a plan in place before he created man? Well, if you look back at Genesis and Genesis 1 and following, you will find that we have been created in the very image of God, verses 26 and 27. And that one of the things that God did in creating us is that he endowed us with the ability to make choices in life. That's right. Sometimes we make good choices. Sometimes we don't make so good choices. We make poorer choices in life. But the point is, is that God in his infinite wisdom recognized that man given the opportunity to make choices in life would either ultimately sin or transgress his will and thus need a redeemer a savior from their sins. And so the Bible talks in a very plain and forthright way about how God had this plan in place before the very foundation of the world and that we might be able to enjoy the blessings of forgiveness 
in Christ. Let me share with you the passion of God for sinful man. When we talk about this plan that was in place before time began, we, we need to understand that the basis upon which this plan was, was set in motion was because of the love of God. Over and over again, the Bible speaks of the tremendous love that had God had has for his, the crown of his creation. Man was the very crown of his creation. And the Bible talks about how that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork, Psalm 19 and verse 1. And so when we look at the world in which we live, we see a demonstration of the very wisdom and the power of Almighty God. And while the world, the universe is beautiful, no doubt, man, that is us, we have been made in the very image and the likeness of Almighty God, and thus we are the crown of His creation. And as the crown of His creation, we enjoy the very riches of His love. For you see, God is the Father to the human family, and God wants to be our spiritual Father as well. God wants us to enjoy a relationship with him. The Bible says in 1 John 1 or 1 John 4 and verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Do you remember when Jesus had conducted his earthly ministry and, and how on one occasion he had said, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 16 and 17. You see, God had loved us and he had demonstrated that love by sending his very begotten son into this world to save us. Oh, I think about the words of Paul in Romans 5 and verse 8 when he said, but God commended his love toward us and while yet we were sinners, he died for us. That is, Christ died for us. And then in Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 where Paul in the long ago said, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins had quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, the Bible talks about unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Certainly, Jesus loved us, but God the, the Father loved us, and that's the reason that he had this plan of redemption in place today. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, Following the transgression of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God began unveiling that very plan of redemption, that plan to redeem the very crown of his creation. And so salvation is great, first of all, because God is the architect. But secondly, it's great because of the agent of our salvation. The architect was God the Father, but the agent whereby his plan was executed was Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, as we think about Jesus' role in our, our redemption, first of all, you need to understand the promise or the prophecies that were relative to his coming. 
In Genesis 3.15, as I mentioned a moment ago, we had the promise given of a seed that would come to bless the human family. And from that particular verse, Genesis 3.15, and going forward, you have a prelude to the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. Over and over again, throughout the scriptures, the prophets foretell of the coming of the Christ. God, of course, had called a man by the name of Abraham, and it would be through the lineage of Abraham that this Messiah, the promised seed, would emerge. God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That would ultimately be fulfilled and find its fulfillment in Jesus, according to Galatians 3.29, where Paul said, And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18, Moses in the long ago spoke to the children of Israel, and he talked about how God would raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And in verse 19, God said, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And then we make the correlation in that scripture to Matthew 17 and verse 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration, where God the Father spoke from heaven, where you hear God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That prophet was Christ. That was the Messiah, the very Son of God, Jesus. In Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Isaiah talks about the fact that Jesus would be born of a virgin. And again, we can trace that seed line from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah, the family of David, and that seed would ultimately come to fruition as borne out by Matthew chapter 1 with the birth of Jesus. You know, Isaiah talked about how Jesus would be born of a virgin. And in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, it depicts the suffering servant, the fact that Jesus would come and bear the sins of many. And so over and over again, the prophets foretell the coming of the Christ. And so when we talk about the promises and the prophecies of his coming, but what about the purpose of his coming? Very important. Well, listen to what the angel of God said to Joseph in Matthew 1 and verse 21. He said to Mary, that ye shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save those which are lost. 
Did Jesus understand his mission? Absolutely. Jesus came to save us. Now the Lord himself would say in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus came to fulfill the will of Almighty God. And his purpose stated over and over again, the Lord would even say in John 6 and verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him, that is the Father, that sent me. Jesus also in the shadow of the cross would talk about executing his will when he said, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. John 17, 4. Now, as we think about the purpose of Jesus coming, there is something that we need to see as well. First, think about his submission to God. You know, everything that Jesus did in the realm of redemption was to comply with his Father's will. Jesus said in John 4, in verse 34, he says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus came to submit to God's will. And in Hebrews 10, verse 7, the writer quotes the psalmist And he talks about the redemptive work of Jesus. He said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O Lord. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus willingly complied with the will of Almighty God, his Father. And then we have the suffering of Jesus. We talked about the fact that he was submissive to God, but what about his suffering as God? Did Peter not talk about how Jesus, who in his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. In that same context, Peter said that long ago, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Verse 21. Go back and and read the, the gospel narratives and notice, if you will, the immense suffering and the torture and the shame that Jesus experienced on Calvary for you and me. He, he wasn't dying for any sins that he had committed, but rather he was dying for my sins, for your sins. And then I think about his sacrifice as God. You see, when Jesus died on Calvary, he died as God in the flesh. In John 1, verses 1 through 3, it talks about the word, that eternal logos, that had been the one who created the world, and that being Jesus. And in verse 14, that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. He points out that the word, that eternal logos became flesh. And Jesus went to the cross and sacrificed himself as God. For whom? For me and you. For me and you, for all the people. And so when we think about the greatness of God's salvation, we need to understand that Jesus, his only begotten son, died for us. 
He went to the cross. He suffered immense humiliation, ill treatment, mockeries, and yet he did it all for us. There's a third reason of why we believe that God's salvation is great, and it is because of its administrator. When we talk about the administrator of salvation, really we're emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit. For you see, the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired these men to write and pen this book that we call the Bible, the Holy Scripture. About 40 men over a period of 1,600 years. And yet, we have that within our laps, within our homes, within our lives. And what you and I need to understand is that everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, God has provided. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, and the reason is, is that we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so it's through the scriptures that we come to understand our place in the human family, partakers of the divine nature, and what God would have us to do, what God would have us to be, over and over again. We read about the all-sufficiency of the scriptures in John 14 and verse 26, and really chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John were spoken to the apostles. And Jesus talked about after his death, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In John 16, 13, Jesus would say, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Everything that you and I need to know that pertains to life and godliness, it's been revealed to us right here in this word. There is nothing more and nothing less that we need but God's word. Do you remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21? He said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed this book that we call scripture. Now, what does that mean to me? Well, this book tells me, number one, that what I need to do to be saved. It tells you what you need to do to be saved. Of all the things that God could have told us, the most important is that we can enjoy a relationship with Jesus. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There is a correlation between salvation and knowing the truth. What is it that they did in the first century to become New Testament Christians? Well, first off, they put their faith and trust in Jesus. They came to the realization that this is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in John chapter 6 and verse 6, 66 and following, when many of the people walked away from Jesus as he announced himself as the bread of life, the Lord asked this question to his disciples. 
will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 69. And then somebody says, well, it, it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. Well, Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye will die in your sins. John 8, 24. And Jesus said, whither I go, ye cannot come. John 8, 21. And then, not only are we told and instructed to believe that Jesus is the Christ, we're also instructed to repent. On Pentecost Day, Peter told those people that were assembled in the city of Jerusalem to repent, that is to turn away from a life and to turn toward God, to the truth of God's word. The Bible also says that we are to com confess with thy mouth what we believe in our heart that Jesus is the Son of God, just like the unit did in Acts 8 and verse 37. And then we are buried with Christ in baptism. Now when we are immersed in water, we then contact the very blood of Christ. Many people miss that correlation between baptism and the blood of Christ. Question, where was the blood of Christ shed? Well, the Bible says that it was shed in his death, John 19, 34. And in order for us to procure the benefits of the blood of Christ, we have to go where that blood was shed. And so that's why in Romans 6 and verse 3, Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's where the blood was shed, right? And when we are baptized into Christ, then we enjoy the salvation. Mark 16, 16. We enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Our sins are washed away, Acts 22 and verse 16. And the Bible not only tells us what to do to be saved, but it instructs us on how to stay saved as well. Over and over again, the scriptures encourage us to live a steadfast life in the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, the very backdrop of, to this book is the fact that many Hebrew Christians were going back to Judaism. And so while the whole book is emphasizing the superiority of the law of Christ as compared to the law of Moses... And what the Hebrew writer was saying is, why would you want to go back to some inferior system? The law of Christ is far more superior than that. Why would you want to go back to Judaism? And so they were instructed to stay faithful to God. And that's what the Lord wants of us today. To be faithful unto death so that we can receive that promise that is the crown of life eternal revelation 2 and verse 10 but then there's a fourth and final reason of why this salvation is so great and it's because of its availability when we talk about the availability of salvation we're talking about mankind that is you and me and how it is that we fit into this thing is it not the case that jesus went to the cross for you personally absolutely he went to the cross for me personally. 
Sometimes when we look around at this world filled with some 8 billion souls, we feel like we're lost among the, the, the maze of people. But what we need to understand is that personally speaking, Jesus died for you personally. Did he die for the world? Yes. Salvation is number one exclusive. But it's exclusive in the sense that only those in Christ will be saved. And yet we understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that no man cometh unto the Father but by and through him, John 14, 6. In Acts 4 and verse 12, Luke wrote in the long ago, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we're going to be saved... It will be exclusively in Christ. That might seem like a narrow way of thinking, and it is. But the point is, Jesus died to save us. No one else has died to save us. No one else could ever die to save us but Jesus the Christ, the very living Son of God. He is our only Redeemer. He is our only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. He is the only one that will give us access to the Father. Salvation is exclusive, but also inclusive. That is, God wants all people to be saved. When we talk about the availability of salvation, salvation is open to all. The doors are open to all, whether rich or poor, educated, uneducated, red, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in God's sight. And God is appealing to everybody. Here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. God would have all men, that is A-L-L, all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. All men, both female and male, all. God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then listen to what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let me ask this question in closing this morning. In light of the fact that God is the architect of salvation, that Jesus is the agent of salvation, that the Holy Spirit is the administrator of of salvation and that salvation is available to all, why would somebody turn a deaf ear to something that is so great, something that is so good, and then allow it to be a blessing? Here we have a message to share with the world. Do you know of a better message than the gospel itself? Do you know of a better message to share with people? Your life might be upside down. You may be having all kinds of problems and issues and difficulties and trials and tribulations. You may be knee deep in a life of sin. But this message, the gospel, has the power, the power to change your life. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians. And you have to understand the Corinthians were knee deep in a life of sin. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If you're in Christ, what's in the past is in the past. We are living in the present. And if you are in Christ and you're walking in the light, then you have the assurance, the very blood of Christ as at, at work in your life. And you are heaven bound. You are redeemed. Jesus is the one who redeemed us to God. He is the one that redeemed us or reconciled us to God. And that says a lot to us that we ought to be living for him and him only. If you're here today and you're not a child of God, not a Christian, a New Testament Christian, can we encourage you to become one? You see, Jesus came to this earth to seek and to save those who are lost, Luke 19.10. But with that, he's also allowing you to make the choice. We only ask that you make the right choice, and that's to follow him. Everybody wants to go to heaven Nobody wants to die to get there, but everybody wants to go to heaven. But if everybody wants to go to heaven, then why won't they obey the gospel? Jesus died, was buried in that tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. It was a new tomb. No other body had been laid there before. And he arose from that grave on that third day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died for you personally? If you do, are you willing to make the changes in your life that reflects that, that you believe, called repentance? Are you willing to make that good confession as we talked about just a few minutes ago? Then are you willing to go down into the waters of baptism to have those sins washed away, to have the remission of sins, to have the forgiveness of sins, and thus to be added to the Lord's church, Acts 2.47 as well. Thus, heaven bound. I hope that you make that decision, that choice, this very morning. Maybe you're here already, a child of God, but wandered off. Wandered off back into a life of sin. Repent of that. Pray that God will forgive you and we'll pray with you, for you as well. But the time is now that you make that right decision before it's everlasting too late. Sing this song, number 275.